how deep the Father's love for us. Let's go to Him in prayer right now. Father, how deep Your love is for us. It goes beyond anything that our words could ever describe. How vast beyond measure is Your love. How vast beyond all measure is the sacrifice of Christ. And so, Father, as the redeemed gathered together, we give thanks to you for doing in our lives what we could never hope to accomplish on our own. Father, I pray that you will bless our time examining your word this evening, that you will be glorified in it, and that you will bring change to our lives to be more and more conformed to Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, over the past several weeks, what we've been doing is we have been going through uh, the book of Ephesians, and primarily during that time, we've been examining uh, verses 3 through 14 uh, there in Ephesians, and we are going to continue that tonight. And so tonight, as we're going to be looking, we're going to consider verses 15 through about 19 or so, uh, which is a prayer that Paul prays. Uh, and so I want us to think about this in light of everything that we read in verses 3 through 14 as we examine this prayer uh, tonight, because as we're going to see, this prayer is driven by what we see in in verses 3 through 14. Uh, And so tonight, I I think really the best way for us to introduce our topic tonight, introduce this prayer, uh, is for us to read what Paul has written in verses 3 through 14, because it really drives everything that comes after that. So Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, listen to the word of the Lord. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. And everything that comes after this, uh, through the end of chapter 1, is a prayer that Paul prays in light of this. Uh, and so in light of everything that we have read here, I want us to think, how are we to pray given the truths of what Paul has just read here? Given the truth that he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Just going through verses 3 through 14 there, that he predestined us to adoption. How are we to pray when we consider that to be true? How are we to pray when we read that we have redemption through his blood, that God has lavished the riches of his grace on us, that we have an inheritance, 
that we have been predestined according to God's good purpose, that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit, and that everything that he writes here is to the praise of the glory of his grace. How are we to pray when we realize that we've been chosen in Christ for the foundation of the world to the praise of the glory of his grace? How are we to pray when we read that we have redemption through his blood to the praise of the glory of his grace? How are we to pray, brothers and sisters, when we see these truths and when we recognize these truths? That's what Paul is going to lead us in uh, in this passage. He prays based on these truths in verses 3 through 14. So I want us to consider tonight how do we pray. And so let's look at verses 15 through 19 at this prayer that Paul prays. And let's read that together. Uh, Read that tonight. Listen uh, to what the Word says. For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. Tonight, as we consider this prayer, I think that that there are many things that we can learn from this prayer that can guide us in how we are to pray in light of the truths of verses 3 through 14. So the first thing that I think that we can learn from this prayer is that we are to pray in thanksgiving. And that's exactly what we see Paul doing in the first couple verses there, verses 15 and 16. He says, For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ which exists among you, your love for all the saints, I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. Paul doesn't cease giving thanks to God for what has happened in the lives of the Ephesians. Because he knows the truth of what is listed out there in verses 3 through 14. Because he knows that they have been predestined by God, that they have been adopted by God, that they are all to the praise of the glory of his grace, and that they have responded in faith there in verse 15, that they responded in faith in the Lord, and that they have love for all the saints. And so Paul says, I do not cease giving thanks to God for what I see happening in your lives and for what I know that he has done in your lives. And so now I want to ask you a question that's, that I promise isn't a trick question. Who is Paul giving thanks to? It, it, I promise this is not a trick question. Who is Paul giving thanks to? He's giving thanks to God. Yes, yeah, all right, you, you can all say now. Yes, he is giving thanks to God. Promise, not a trick question. Now, I want, I want you to think about that for just a second. Why is it, why is it that Paul was giving thanks to God for what is happening here? So, he's giving thanks because he has seen the Ephesian church having faith in the Lord Jesus. Who's exercising the faith there? It's, it's the Ephesian believers, right? They're the ones who are having faith, Right? What does it say also that they're doing there in verse 15? They, they have love for all the saints. So who's doing these acts of love? Right, it's the Ephesian Christians. So we have to think, why is Paul giving thanks to God when it's the Ephesian Christians who are doing it? I mean, if somebody does something for me, 
I give thanks. I, I thank them. We had some of our Sunday school class members give us some presents, some diapers and all kinds of good stuff uh, for our baby girl that's going to be born, you know, due in about a month. And so we're, we're thankful. We thank them. Thank you for the diapers. That's a great gift. You know, something that we desperately need, you know, have a newborn coming. But Paul doesn't give thanks to the Ephesians for what he sees happening in their lives, even though they're the ones who are doing it. It's an important point for us to get tonight. See, when Paul sees the Ephesians demonstrating love to one another, he's pouring out thanks to God because he sees that the faith of the Ephesians, their love for one another, isn't due to their own work, but as a result of the grace of God in their lives. You see, it's a result of everything that we see in verses 3 through 14. The very fact that they have faith, the very fact that they have these acts of love that they're doing toward one another is a result of God having, in verse 4, chose them in Christ for the foundation of the world, that he predestined them to adoption as sons, that he has given them redemption through his blood, that he has lavished his grace on them. All these things that are outworking in the lives of the Ephesians, is a result of God's grace being poured out upon their lives. And so when Paul sees this work of God in their lives, he gives thanks to God because it's all a result of God having worked his grace in their lives. And so anytime that we see a work of God in people's lives, when we see people who are loving one another, when we see lives being changed by the gospel, when we see people giving sacrificially, when we see people devoting themselves to the gospel, when we see missionaries going forth, when we see people giving their lives for the sake of the advancement of the gospel, we don't say, thank you, Billy Bob, for doing that. We say, thank you, God, for the work that you have done because it is of his grace and his mercy, his work that has fueled them and led them to that point in their lives. And so any work that comes out of our lives, just like in the lives of the Ephesians, we give thanks to God for that happening. And that's what Paul does here. He says, cries out, thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God, for the work that you have done in these people. Now, I think that the application here for us is is pretty obvious. You know, we can get this. You know, because of what God has done, we're to give thanks to him for what he has done in our lives. We didn't get here on our own. Everything in the book of Ephesians screams out to us that our salvation is a work of God. It's of God's grace. Scott Gilbert did not get himself here. It is God's grace that has brought me here. You see everything there in Ephesians chapter 1. It's God's work. As we're going to see in Ephesians chapter 2 here in a couple of weeks, it is God taking us who are dead in our trespasses and sin, who are at enmity with him, who are children of wrath, as Paul says, and he raised us with Christ, seated us with him in the heavenly places, and by grace we have been saved. It is all a work of God. And so when we see that, just like Paul, we are to cry out, thank you, God, for the work that you have done in my life. Thank you, because I could never do this. It is a work of you. Thank you, God. But I I think also that this should be a reminder to us that we should give thanks to the work of God among us as a church. You know, earlier uh, today we talked about how we are part of a faith family, that God has brought us together 
as brothers and sisters in Christ. And that he has, that he has done this work. And, and I think that, that you would all agree with me that God has done an amazing work of grace in this body. And, and, and I'm not just talking about this building. I mean, th- what we have here are these walls. This, I mean, this is great. This is, this is a wonderful gift of God. But what I'm talking about here is the work of grace that God has done in our lives here. You know, I look back on the past six years or so, and I have seen lives changed. You and I have seen people going from being totally turned away from God, turned away from Him and lost in their sins, to being alive in Christ. We've seen families that have had their lives changed. We've seen people who have repented and turned to Christ. I've seen dads step up and lead their families. I've seen moms giving their all, pouring the gospel into their kids. We've seen people sacrifice unbelievably for the sake of the gospel. We've seen people give unbelievably for God's glory. When we look at all God has done, these things, these works of love, we look and we just say, thank you, God. Thank you, God, for the work that you are doing in our faith family here at Grace Baptist Church. Isn't it amazing the grace that God has poured out on us and the work that we've seen him do in and among us? And so we give thanks to him. Thank you, God, for the work that you've done. Well, not only do we see in Paul's prayer here that it should drive us to thanksgiving, but we also see that an example that we pray in petition to God. In verses 17 through 19, that's what Paul does. He, he, he makes petitions to God on behalf of the Ephesians, praying for them. And so I want to read verses, uh, verse 17 again, because right here we hear Paul praying that we might know God better. Listen to this again. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. So basically Paul is praying here, just kind of sum this up. Paul is praying that the Ephesian Christians will know God better. Now, I want you to think about that for just a second. Out of all the things that Paul could have prayed here, he prays that they'll know God better. You know, he could have prayed for their families. He could have prayed for their safety. He could have prayed for the advancement of the gospel, for their courage to stand up uh, in the face of persecution. He could have prayed for any number of things here. But instead, he prays that they will know God more deeply. We have to wonder, why is that? Why does he make that the focus of his prayer after what he has said here in verses 3 through 14. I want, I want you to look at just a few verses that I think are going to help us figure this out. I want you to look at verse 6. Just read through verse 6 real quickly to yourself. And now look down at verse 12. Look, look at verse 12 and read that to yourself. And once you've done that, look at verse 14. So I want you to look at verse 6, verse 12, and verse 14. 
What is the common phrase in those three verses? To the praise of his glory. Everything that we see in verses 3 through 14, it's all to the praise of his glory. Paul says this over and over and over again so that we'll get it. All God's work is to the praise of the glory of his grace. And so if everything that God is doing is to the praise of the glory of his grace, of the redemption that he has worked in in our lives, if it's all to his glory, then we have been saved for his glory. And the greatest way that we can glorify God is to know him and be more like him. Because it is all for his glory, right? And so the greatest way that we can glorify God is to know him and enjoy him and worship him forever with all of our lives. J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, says, The ignorance of God, ignorance both of his ways and of the practice of communion with him, lies at the root of much of the church's weakness today. He goes on to say, The main business you are here for is to know God. The main business you and I are here for is to know God, to worship him and to be satisfied in him alone. Now, when I think about that, that that my main business is knowing God, it brings up a question in my mind. Because when I think about my main task as a believer, my main job I have, my thought immediately goes to the Great Commission. My main task is to make disciples of all the nations. But we have Paul here praying, basically Make sure that you are knowing God better. This is the first thing he prays. So what is it? Is is our main task knowing God, or is our main task making him known? I do think, I do think our main task is knowing God. And from that comes making God known. Let, let Let me explain here why I put knowing God, having a logical priority ahead of making God known. And let me just preface this by giving a caveat here, a little explanation, that I believe absolutely in the Great Commission, that you and I are commanded to go and make disciples. It's not a call. It's not a possibility. It is not something that is a maybe in the Christian life. Jesus says, go make disciples. Is one of those things that if we are not actively seeking to make disciples, then we are in disobedience to what Christ has commanded us. So how is it then that knowing God can take priority over that? You see, I, I think it's because when we get a taste of the glory of God, that drives us to make the glory of God known. And I think all through Scripture, And all through the history of the church, this is what we see. We see men and women knowing God, getting a glimpse of his glory, and then they give all for the sake of his glory and making his glory known. Think about Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6, passage everyone knows. Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up. And he sees the train of his robe filling the temple. And he sees the seraphim there. And they are crying out constantly, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. And Isaiah is there and he falls on his face and says, woe is me, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. And and the, the cold touches his lips and he stands up. And immediately, what does he say? Here am I. Send me. Gets a glimpse of God's glory and his first thought then is, here am I, God, use me for making the fame of your name known to the people around me. Think about Paul. 
the greatest missionary, greatest theologian to ever live. What is it that drives him? He sees the risen Christ. It's his knowledge and understanding of who Christ is, having experienced him, and that drives him to take the gospel all across his world. I want to share with you the story of a man by the name of Adoniram Judson. Uh, he was a missionary to, uh, to Burma uh, in, the, uh, in the 1800s. Adoniram Judson was a, the son of, a, uh, of Christians, but he was a brilliant young man. As he grew in his knowledge, he quickly became a professed atheist. One day while he was out traveling after he had graduated from college, he was on a trip and he went up to an inn and he went into the inn and he asked for a room. Apologetically, the landlord explained that only one room being vacant, he would be obliged to put him, in, him next door to a young man who was extremely ill. In fact, he was probably dying. Judson said, I'll take the room. Death has no terrors for me. You see, I'm an atheist. Judson retired, but sleep eluded him. The partition between the walls was very thin, and for long hours he listened to the groans of the dying man, groans of agony and groans of despair. The poor fellow is evidently dying in terror. I suppose I should go to his assistance, but what could I say that would help him, thought Judson to himself. And he shivered at the very thought of going into the presence of the dying man. He felt a blush of shame steal over him. What would his late, unbelieving companions think if they knew of his weakness? Above all, what would witty, brilliant, fellow atheist Ernest say if he knew? As he tried to compose himself, the dreadful cries from the next room continued. He pulled the blankets over his head, but still he heard the awful sounds and shuddered. Finally, all became quiet in the next room. At dawn, having had no sleep, he rose and inquired of the innkeeper concerning his fellow lodger. He is dead. Dead, replied Justin. Do you know who he was? Yes, the innkeeper answered. He was a graduate of Providence College, a young fellow named Ernest. Justin was overwhelmed by the news that the young man who died the previous night in the adjoining room in the evident terror of death was his college friend Ernest, who had led him into infidelity and atheism. For many hours, the words dead, lost, lost kept ringing in his ears. There was now just one place that beckoned him. Turning his horse's direction, he went home and begged his father and mother to help him find a faith that would stand the test of life and of death and of time and eternity. So Judson went home and he searched the scriptures and read of the love of Christ. He read of the love of Christ and he trusted in Christ and he soon became consumed with the thought and the knowledge of the love of Christ. And it was this experience of the love of Christ, his knowledge of the love of his Savior that drove him to spend the rest of his life taking the gospel to the people of Burma. And he spent the rest of his days there, died thousands of people having come to know the Lord through his ministry there. And so I would say that it is knowing God that drives us to make the gospel known. Because when we get a glimpse of the greatness and the glory of God and his majesty, then we stand as Isaiah and we say, here am I, send me. And if our knowledge of God does not give us an earnestness for the fame of his name, then there is something wrong with our knowledge of God. Because the knowledge, the true knowledge of the greatness of our God should drive us to say, send me. Here I am for your glory. I want your name to be known. And so, yes, I would say with Paul here, and what I believe Scripture teaches, that, that knowing God is the most fundamental 
basic aspect of Christianity. And so that's why Paul prays here, basically, that they will know God better. And so that is our prayer, and one thing that we must pray for ourselves is that we will know God better in a spirit of revelation and wisdom, as Paul says. Not speaking of a sense of biblical revelation, getting new God, but more, more the idea of illumination, understanding of God's word that will give us a better understanding of who God is, and knowing God better, we'll have a greater passion for him, and knowing God and having a greater passion for him, we'll have more and more passion for his name to be known around the world. D.A. Carson says, only such work by God's Spirit will enable us to know him better. Therefore, we must pray for it. If we fail to do so, we betray our cool interest in really knowing God better. Even though a moment's reflection shows us there is nothing more important in God's universe, both in time and in eternity, than knowing God better. Therefore, with Paul, we must earnestly pray to God that we might know him better. Church, let's pray that. Let's pray that you and I know God better. But not only are we to pray that we know God better, but also pray that we have a better understanding of the things of God. And this is what Paul prays uh, in verses uh, 18 and 19. Listen again to what he says there. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you'll know three things. So that you'll know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. And I want us to deal quickly with these three things uh, that, we'll, that he wants us to, to know, to have our eyes of our, uh, of our heart enlightened to. Number one uh, is that we will uh, have our eyes opened uh, to understand better the hope of his calling. If you and I are believers, then we have been drawn, we have been called by God to know him. And we have a, a hope of our calling, that our calling is going to lead somewhere one day. This morning, we, we sang several songs that ended focusing on the hope of our calling. Remember that song that we sang this morning, I Will Rise? There will come a time that we will rise after our death, that we will rise and we will go be with him forever in glory. This is the hope of our calling, that there is coming a day when all the pain, all our sin, all our struggle, everything will be over and we will go to be with him forever. And we will hear those beloved words that we have longed to hear for so long. Well done, my good and faithful servant. And we will stand with the multitude that is described in Revelation chapter 7. It says, a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice saying, salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. This is the hope of our calling, that this is what we experience forever. What, what might happen when we fully grasp, when we have the, the eyes of our heart enlightened to this truth? When, when we get that, doesn't everything else here fade in importance? Don't we stop seeking the riches of this world and we start laying up treasure in heaven when we realize the hope of our calling? Doesn't everything else fade before our eyes as we set our eyes on the cross and on our home forever with him? That's all Paul prays. Let your, the eyes of your heart be enlightened to that. 
He also prays that the riches of the glory uh, of, of his inheritance in the saints uh, will be made known to us, that we'll understand this. You know, when, when I first read this, my first thought is that Paul's speaking about the inheritance that, that I will receive as a believer. But that's not what Paul says here. Look, uh, look at verse 18 uh, that is there. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of whose inheritance? His inheritance, God's inheritance. You know, commentators look at this and they say, what is the inheritance that God is describing? God is describing us. Paul's describing us here. The redeemed, we are the inheritance of God. You know, it's hard to think about sinful me, the inheritance of God, but we must remember that, that I and you, if you are believers, we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We have Christ's righteousness. So when he sees me, he sees the righteousness of Christ. And so Kent Hughes puts it this way. He, God owns all the heavens and numberless worlds, but we are his treasures. The redeemed are worth more than the universe. What an amazing truth. Why, why would Paul pray that the Ephesians would understand this? It's, it's not so they'll be puffed up. But when we understand that we are the riches of God's inheritance, our lives become different. We, we stop living for ourselves. We lay ourselves at his feet and we say, it's all yours. My life is yours. Take me. Use me as you see fit. Because I'm yours. I belong to you. And, and the third thing that Paul prays that, that they will have the eyes of their hearts enlightened to is God surpassing greatness toward us who believe. He prays that they will know what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. In describing the greatness of God's power, he gives an example. And the example that he gives uh, is of the resurrection. And that's what comes in in verses 19 and and following. Just listen to what Paul says. This is what he's saying. This is an illustration of the absolute power of God. It says, these are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. One commentator said that if the, the death of Christ is the supreme demonstration of the love of God, then the resurrection of Christ is the supreme demonstration of his power because he conquered death. He conquered everything when he raised Christ from the dead. And see, if God is able to raise the dead, if he is able to accomplish victory over sin and death, then there is nothing that stands in the way of our God. There is nothing that our God cannot do. There is no grief in your life that is beyond the power of God. There is no sin in your life that is beyond the power of God to eradicate. There is no situation that you are facing that is beyond his ability to intercede and to overcome. If if he was able to raise Christ, then he is able to accomplish every single purpose that he has for your life. And when we grasp that truth, then we trust him in everything. Right? Because if he's the God that is able to raise from the dead, to accomplish victory over death and over sin, then isn't he the God who can take care of every single situation that you are facing right now? And so Paul prays, I pray that the eyes of their heart will be enlightened to understand this. This is a great 
prayer for us to pray. We need to pray this prayer. You know, you know to be honest, most of the time, this, this isn't exactly the way that we pray. You know, if you think about how, how do you pray most often, what, what is the topic that is, that is part of your prayer life usually uh, when you pray? If we're honest and you know, talking, look at my own life, more often than not, our prayers are consumed with either crisis prayers, you know, something that has happened that we're praying with immediately right then, or it's some kind of physical need. Now, I, I, I don't think that praying for those things are wrong. I think it's actually it's good to do that. We need to pray for emergency situations. We need to pray for physical needs, for sickness, for, for illness and, and, and pain and suffering. We need to pray for those things. But at the same time, if that's all our prayers consist of, then we have missed what should really be at the heart of our prayers. And more often than not, what we see the prayers of the early church is, is a concern for spiritual matters. Knowing God, trusting God, seeing him, grasping his call, persevering in persecution. And my fear is that all too often our prayers are weak and our lives are weak because we give so little attention to prayer like what we see here in Ephesians 1. So what, what would it be like if, if this kind of prayer was the way your Sunday school prayed? What would it be like if this is, this is the way that your family prayed together? What might it be like if, if this is the way that we prayed when we gather for prayer meeting? When, when this kind of prayer is part of our prayer time together, with these kinds of focus and attention. Tonight, I, I, want, us to, I want us to pray the prayer that Paul prayed here. So tonight, rather than ending in a song or, or anything else, I want, us to, I want us to use Paul's prayer here as a guide for us praying. Praying for ourselves and praying for one another, praying for this body here. And so tonight, that, that's how we're going to be dismissed, is, is us gathering together corporately in prayer. So let's pray right now, and I'll guide us through this prayer time. First of all, take a few moments to give thanks for the work that God has done in your life in bringing you to salvation and for the work that God has done here in the lives of people at Grace. Now I want you to pray for the person on your left and the person on your right. Pray that the person on your left, the person on your right, will know God better. Now pray for those same people that God will open their eyes, enlighten their eyes to the hope of his calling 
on them. That they will have their eyes on eternity, not here. Pray for those same people that their eyes will be enlightened to the truth that they are God's inheritance if they are His. Finally, pray for those, those people that they will have the eyes of their hearts enlightened to the surpassing greatness of the strength of God that He is able to accomplish all things in their life. Father, I thank you for bringing us together as a faith family. I thank you, for, thank you for the work that you have done. Work that only you could do in uniting us, calling us to yourself, doing such a great work of grace in us. I pray, Lord, that in us you will work as a body that we will individually and corporately know you better. that the Spirit will work wisdom, revelation in us for the purpose of knowing you. God, I pray that in all of us you will enlighten the eyes of our hearts so that we will know the hope of the calling which you have given to us. That we will know the riches of the glory of your inheritance and that we will know the surpassing greatness of your power. God, I pray that you'll continue your great work among us as we remember that it's all to the praise of your glory. May you be glorified in us, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.